Well, it's no secret that men do not like looking at the directions. Am I right? That is true. And in my case, I found out that I'm not too great at giving directions either. When I uh, was, uh, I don't know how old I was, probably about 22, 23, I was running in my hometown, little town out in the middle of nowhere, and I was trying to go on a jog, exercise a little bit, and uh, in the middle of my run, I was just huffing and puffing, and a car uh, flagged me down. Uh, a gal and her family roll up, roll down the window, and they say, listen, we aren't from around here, and I'm like, I know you're not from around here looking, <laughs> and uh, they said, you know, we're lost and we need help trying to figure out where we need to go. And I said, I have been living here for decades. I'm sure I can help you figure out where you're going. Uh, and sure enough, she said she were, they were looking to get to, and I said, hey, well, here's what you do. All right, you turn at the, at the end of this road, you're going to take a left. You're going to go all the way down 2990. You're going to take a right over there at 1550 and head off on 34. And when you get about two miles down, you're going to see uh, a sign. That's the road you're looking for. All right, you take a right down there, and about half a mile to the end of that destination is exactly where you're looking to go. And she said, all right, good, I can do that. And so, um, you know, you're saying, all right, that was pretty good, you know, off the top of my head. And uh, she and her family drive off, and I continue running. Uh, and as I was thinking, close to the end of my run, I kind of stopped and I said, you know, I think it was a left, not a right. And I knew at that moment I had given terrible, terrible direction, all right, at that moment. And here's the problem. Uh, worse than being me giving myself wrong directions, because it's, I know I give myself wrong direction, at the end of the day I can go back and kind of look and say, oh, where did I kind of fall off or give the wrong direction? The problem is, is when we begin giving other people bad direction, and they look at us like the experts. And so it had me thinking as I was looking at the text this morning in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, and you can go ahead and flip open there in your Bibles, uh, it got me thinking about the necessity to accurately give direction. Right? And in the context of the church, it made me think about the way that we must accurately be preaching the message of the gospel. And not only just the gospel, but all the contents of Scripture and how that is so important. Because as a matter of fact, our mission at Compass and our mission as Christians in general is to work hard to accurately preach Christ to everyone, not just some people and not trying to get it right 80% of the time, but making sure that we're always prepared to give accurate instruction concerning God's Word. And we do that as Scripture teaches so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. And we do this, and all this work that we get to do as a church, we don't do it on our own, right? We don't do it by trusting in our own ability. But as Paul points out here, we trust in the power of God in us to sustain and complete the work in which He has called us to do. Now, there is a danger, there is a problem uh, that people have, and that is neglecting the hard work of preaching will create a kind of church that we don't want. Neglecting to accurately preach the Word of God will create a lethargic church, one of those kinds of churches that you don't want to be a part of. They're kind of, they, they kind of like lazy, they're kind of overweight, and they kind of don't get a lot of work done, you know what I'm saying? And you've all been a part of those types of churches where the preaching of God's Word in the pulpit and in your own lives as you're sharing the message with people out in your community, uh, it's sometimes non-existent, and other times it's given haphazardly. And you've all been a part of a church like this, and what we are saying at our church is we're going to make sure that we never neglect the hard work 
of preaching God's Word. Because it is hard work, of course. You know this as you're trying to share the gospel to people in your own neighborhood. You oftentimes find out that you don't know as much about God's Word as you thought you did. And you need to know a lot more in order to engage people in the teaching of God's Word. And so what we're going to make sure at Compass is we're not neglecting the hard work that would create a lethargic church and a church where God's power isn't indeed working. You see, God is looking for churches that are taking serious His Word. God is looking for churches and people who are taking seriously the teaching of His Word and the reading of His Word and the understanding of His Word because it's those churches that God wants to work in and through to accomplish His goal of reaching lost souls and discipling the saved. And so for us, we are never going to neglect preaching the whole counsel of God's Word. We're never going to neglect doing the hard work of preaching because it is hard work because we don't want to be a lethargic church. We want to be a strong church that is capable in Christ through the power of God to accomplish much, to do the work of ministry that God has set us out here to accomplish. And that's really what Paul is is getting to here in his letter to the Colossians. And what we have to understand if we want to do those things, we have to submit to a teaching model. And that's what Paul does in uh, verses 28 and through 29, is Paul explains God's teaching model for building his church. We need a model because we need to know, okay, Great, we need to build God's church. We want to accurately teach God's word, but how do we do that? Well, the good news is the Bible teaches us exactly how we ought to go about teaching God's word. And so what he does here in verse 28, let's go ahead and look at verse 28. In verse 28, Paul lays out a couple of things. Okay, Number one, he lays out his message. Two, he lays out his method. And three, he lays out his goal of preaching. So what we can see here is the message, the method, and the goal. And so three things, and I want to start out with number one, the message. Let's look at what is the message that we ought to be propagating as Christians. It's found in the first phrase of verse 28. And it says this, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. We have to understand that in our message that God has given us to tell the world is not about you, it's not about me, it's not even about compass, it's about Him. We have to understand that Paul starts out this way. You learned, Paul just talked to the church about the the sufficiency of Christ, Christ's substitutionary death on the cross and the atonement, all these big theological words saying, listen, Jesus did the work necessary for you and I to be right with a holy God. And then he's saying, listen, and here's our job in in seeing as many people saved as possible. We are going to proclaim him. Not me, not you, not Compass Bible Search. We are going to proclaim Christ. And I don't want to make too much out of this little phrase, but if we're going to be Christians, right, which is what we are when we repent of our sins, turn away from a life, live for ourselves, and trust in Christ. That's how one becomes a Christian. And if we are Christians, and we are going to go and share a message of reconciliation to the world, we have to understand that we are being reconciled to God through Christ. It's about Christ, and it can't be about anything else. And so we have to focus on this if we're going to get uh, to accurately preaching the Bible to everyone. And so one, it's Him. Like, Him we proclaim. Katalasso. This word, it says it's preaching, and when we look at this, me too sometimes, we look at this word and we think what? That's my job, right? I'm the preacher. I'm the preaching. Well, this word katalasso isn't necessarily a specific uh, to the person behind the pulpit. Now, there are words uh, and there are times in Scripture where they talk about the person, the pastor, who's teaching the flock. But this word is a general term. 
which a general term means this, that it's not just my job to preach the message of the gospel, it's your job to preach the message of the gospel. So this katalasso, this word proclaim, is the general command for all of God's people to make sure that we are proclaiming Him in our lives. One final thought on the word proclaim. We've got to understand something about God's word, about His gospel. It is a proclaimed gospel. You hear what I'm saying here? It's a gospel that must be spoken. And I'm here to talk to all of us, and specifically those people who say things like this often uh, quoted uh, phrase that is just the worst, and it says that uh, always preach the gospel, but use words when necessary. Okay, N- absolutely not. Okay, that's not never in Scripture. When we, see, when we see the gospel being presented, it's a spoken gospel. It's a proclaimed message. And as much as we ought to be living life in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? living life in light of the gospel, we always live in light of a proclaimed gospel. We always live our lives to be holy, but it's in light of something that we heard. It's in light of a proclaimed message that God has called all of us to participate in. And so what we need to understand, it's a message about Christ, and it's a message that is spoken. And so as we speak this message, we need to make sure, and I have it on point number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, and please do take notes, is this, that we need to make the message about Christ. It's not about us, it's not about even about this church, it's about Christ. And it's a message that we must proclaim because of this. I'm going to flip you to Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 through 17. Oftentimes when we don't proclaim the gospel, a lot of times it's because of what Paul is addressing to the Romans in one, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And we have to be aware of this in our own life, or we're never going to get over this hump in our own life. And that is this. We don't share the gospel a lot of times because we're ashamed of the gospel. Okay, we're ashamed of the good news of Christ. And you can say, well, it's not per se that I'm ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of maybe the church. I'm ashamed of how people have used the gospel. I'm ashamed of, you know, I'm ashamed of uh, what people might think of me if, I, if they find out that I'm one of those Jesus freak people who are really serious about the gospel. And I'm saying, you can put it however you want it. You can package it in this box or that box. But at the end of the day, we're going to get to this simple fact that as Paul is saying, so many of us are ashamed of the gospel message. And we're ashamed to be associated with the people of God and the things of God. And Paul says here in Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, that I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why? Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation to some people who believe. That's not what it says, is it? It's the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and y'all understood that from last week, of the mystery of Christ, not only now to the people of Israel, but the gospel message has now been granted to all people, the Greeks and Gentiles, everybody now has access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand that we can't be ashamed of this message. And here's why we can't be ashamed of it. For in this message, right, in this gospel, in the package within this gospel, the contents poured out of this gospel is this, the righteousness of God revealed. We understand that in the gospel message that we possess, that we get to give out to the world, possessed in it is the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. 
Everyone wants to live a righteous life. They do. Everyone wants to work to live the best life they can. I, I will scarcely find a person, and I would bet that you couldn't either, who when you ask them, hey, what do you think about living a better life? Not me. I'm trying to live the worst life possible. No. Everyone you know wants to live a better life. And what we have right here is the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. And so all these people, they're, they're searching after lesser glories, lesser things of the world, because they actually have a problem with righteousness in the presence of God. And Christ fulfills that righteousness on our behalf, and it's our job to be revealing that righteousness to the world. Right? People already have this in their hearts and minds that they have a, an issue, and they have a sin issue. And they may not call it sin, they may call it all these other words that society has given them, but the Bible calls it sin, and people have a problem. And we now have this gospel message, and we can reveal it, and it's found in the gospel of Christ. And so what we can't do is we can't be ashamed of it. We need to make it about Christ, and it's all about Christ. It's unapologetically about Christ. And at the end of the day, we're going to, as Paul says, not be ashamed of the gospel message. We live in a time where people want to do a couple things. We live in a time where people want to hide the gospel. It's a lot of us, right? Some of us, we do that, right? Uh, we put our uh, Jesus card in our back pocket so people don't see it, right? We don't try to put it in our front pocket where people see the outline of it. We're like, no, let's hide that real good and put it in my back pocket, right? We want to hide it. Uh, we want to truncate the gospel. Like, we want to just remove some stuff. We want to make it more compact, easily accessible. Like, uh, we understand the gospel means that God created the universe, right? That God is holy, right? He's completely different and set apart from you and I, and he's also just, which means that any sin requires a just punishment, right? I mean, we understand that's part of the gospel, right? That those things about God have to be true when it comes to the gospel. But you know what we often do in the gospel? We cut those off, and then we start talking about, you know what, but God's also love. God's love. Let's just talk about God's love. And truncating the gospel means we talk about this thing about God without getting people the whole picture of the other things that we have to understand about God. Why does it matter if God is loving if everyone's going to get away with sin? Well, as a matter of fact, if you take that rabbit hole too far, you're going to understand something, that nobody who's truly loving can overlook the sin committed against people. Right? We understand that. You're not going to be loving uh, if you allow one of your children to beat up your other child all the time, right? Somebody has got to pay the penalty for beating up the brother, and the brother, right? So we got to understand that nobody is truly loving if they're not also these other things. And you wonder why when people talk about God, they don't understand. What do you mean the gospel? I just know God's love. I get all those things. Well, God is also creator of the universe, which means he's in charge of everything, right? He's also holy, completely set apart, different from you and me, right? He, he can't be in the presence of sin. And he's also just, which means that very thing that keeps you away from God is also the very thing that makes it punishable by God, right? Your sin, right? But here's the good news, that he's also loving. Did you see that? Right? When we talk about all these other things about God, they make the loving part of God much more substantial and meaningful and necessary in the lives of Christians, and so we don't truncate the gospel by cutting off all of the bad news because if there is no bad news, there's really no good news. The bad news makes the good news good news. And what we're going to say, we can't truncate the gospel. We're not cutting off these other things so we can make it more palatable and appeasable to our society. We're going to give people the message as it was given to us because that's how we heard about it and that's how we turned away from our sins. And in a, in a way, how dare we take a message and change it when God has given it to us to declare in a particular way accurately and holy. And so we aren't going to truncate the gospel, and we're also not going to twist the gospel. 
If we're not going to do those things, we need to always make sure that we're proclaiming a biblical gospel. And that's one of our distinctives of Compass Bible Church, is we're always working to proclaim a biblical gospel. And when I say working, because sometimes it's even hard for us. When we have a friend that we love, that we want to see come to Christ, we often kind of soften the gospel a little bit, you know, by twisting it just a little, right? You know, I know you've been dealing with... uh, with that marriage, I know your marriage just hasn't been great. And you know, if you give your life to Christ, he'd make your marriage better. He would just make your marriage so much better. Right? All that is we want to stop it and twist it just a little bit. Because as Christians, we know that becoming a Christian doesn't make your marriage better. Right? We can look at Scripture. I can look at 1 Corinthians 7. When, it talks, when Paul's talking to women, when they get saved and their husbands won't believe. And so we have places in Scripture where it says, hey, listen, you becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily make your life better. Oftentimes, it doesn't restore your marriage, but it teaches you how to live in Christ within a marriage that isn't great. It teaches you how to live underneath the leadership of an organization or a company or a country or a city that isn't living for God. And that's what Scripture does, but mainly what the gospel is going to do is it's going to make you right in the presence of a holy God. It's going to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ, and it may not make your marriage better. Now, with that being said, because we don't want to twist the gospel. What we want to do is give a fair representation of the gospel. Because many of us sitting in here can, can testify to the truth that my husband and me, my wife, my husband, the spouses, you can testify to this, that you're right. But when I did become a Christian, it did help my marriage. Right? It did impact my marriage, and it did influence my marriage for the better. You can say things like that, because it is true. Right? In Christ, you are sanctified. But the message of the gospel isn't to transform your marriage. It's to transform a sinner into righteousness in the presence of God. And so we've got to keep that straight and not twist it. Because oftentimes we'll twist the message just a little here and just a little there. And what we present to people is not a saving gospel. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel of if you want these things, you need to do these things. And what Christ says, listen, right? all you need to do is turn away from a life lived for you trust in me. That's what salvation happens. And when you begin turning away from a life lived for yourself, things are going to happen. Your marriage probably will get better, right? Your kids who were unruly and wild will probably start living a little bit more obedient and submissive. That's what happens when the Spirit of God is in a, in a home, right? But your salvation is not for those specific things. It's to fix the problem that you have with the Holy God. So we've just got to make sure that we make the message about Christ and make it accurately for what it is. And we have to understand that and to do that, like I said, you can do three things. One I've already talked about. You need to learn how to present the biblical gospel, which we just did. Right? We talk about presenting a biblical gospel. It always needs to understand who God is, what Christ has done, our problem, and God's solution. It has to provide those aspects. That's what a gospel message is. Right? We can't make the gospel about anything that it's not about. And so it always has to be about who God is. Why is it necessary that we have to be saved? Right? Who is Christ? What makes, uh, what makes Christ uh, able to save? What about man? Why, are we, what, why do we have a problem? What is our problem? And what is God's solution for our problem? How does Christ fix it? And why does God require it? You see, it works, because that's the gospel message. Right? Number two, you need to make it about him and not about you. And a lot of times this happens in our testimonies. Right? A lot of times in our testimonies, we make our testimony more about us than about God. And it's so important that in our testimonies, our testimony, which means uh, how has God uh, 
interacted in your life to get you to a time in your life where you recognized your sin and your separation from God, that you, in that moment, turned away from your sins and trusted in Christ, and then what has God done after that? That's a testimony, okay? And your testimony has to be about Christ and not about you. And here's what I mean by that. We all have a BC, right, before Christ, my life before Christ. And what so many of us want to do within our testimonies is make it all about us. I tell you what, there is nobody better than me. I was the baddest bad ever, right? I sinned so much, right? I used to just do all the bad things. That was me. And you can spend half an hour on all the bad things you've ever done, right? And then you get to the end of all the bad things you've ever done and say, yeah, and then Christ saved me. That's it. Bam. And like, you didn't, that's no testimony. Like, you just told me why we're all the same, like why everyone's bad. We all know that we sin, right? I mean, First John, right? Anyone who says that they do not sin, deceive themselves, right? Because everyone sins, right? And so what we have to understand is this. Your testimony is not about you. It's about what Christ has done in you. And so a testimony, on the other hand, should look more like this. Yeah, there are a lot of bad things that happen in my life. I'm a sinner. I'm dirty. But I want to tell you more about the moment that I was saved. I want to tell you what I went through. I want to tell you what God did in my life in this 20-minute period of my life where I recognized my sin, I realized I needed to turn away from it, and I, I turned away from my sin, and I trusted in Christ. Because it is a momentary thing. You realize that. Justification is something that happens in a moment, okay? Uh, and some of you in here may be of the group that says, you know what? I don't remember when I was saved. I think I grew up Christian, and I was just saved. And I'm thinking, okay, that could be your testimony. But we have to come to a conclusion of, of this, right? Regardless, if you can't remember the time you got saved, you have to understand that justification is a moment in time. The word justification is, is indeed a moment in time, right? If I'm justified in the court of law, right, there was a moment when that gavel hit, and they said, not guilty, all right? You didn't progressively become not guilty, right? It happened in a moment of time. Your salvation is the same way, right? You were justified in a moment of time. And that moment of time came when you recognized you were a sinner, when you turned away from your sins and you trusted in Christ, okay? So although you may be of a group who says, I can't remember my testimony, I'm saying, regardless if you remember it or not, there, it was a moment in time. So we have to get there. Now, when we can get there, then we can then dig in our life a little bit. Let's dig and dig and say, that's right, because that's what the Bible teaches. So let's, let's dig and say, when was I saved? When was the moment in my life that I turned from my sins and I trusted in Christ? Because here's the problem. If not you'll be in danger of twisting the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. You heard, you heard the word legalism, right? And a lot of times people call Christians legalists, right? But that's a really generic way to define the word legalism. Legalism in the, in the specific definition is this, that I'm doing something to earn something. So to say you're a legalist is somebody who couldn't be a Christian because no Christian can be a legalist because we believe that it is by grace through faith. And it is not a work of my own. It's a gift from God. Right? We all know that scripture. But legalism says, I did something, and I worked for my salvation, and I then received it. Well, if you're one of those people who say, you know what, I've always been a Christian, or I just became a Christian, well, that's literally legalism, right? I don't know, it just happened, and over time, I just became a Christian. Well, that means you were doing something in that time, and you ended up getting somewhere because of what you were doing. And what we're going to say is, that's legalism, it's not Christianity. Christianity means that there was a time in my life, and it's a specific time. And what a good testimony is going to do is it's going to de delineate from that moment of saying, here was my life before Christ, bam, here was the moment in my life that, I, that my life turned away from living for myself and toward God, whoop, and we're going to talk about that, and our testimony is going to really focus in on that. I was, for instance, I was 15 years old, it was 4 a.m. in the morning, 
And uh, I, man, my life was just not going great. There was sin in my life. There was spiritual warfare in my life. My family was having a lot of conflict. And, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, a God had woke me up. I sat up in my bed, put my feet on the floor, and I bowed my head my head and folded my hands, and I remember I had a CD player in front of me. It had this blue light. CD players, you don't know what those are, right? All right. It had a blue light, and it was like filling up my room with blue light, and I remember, and I was sitting there saying, God, I cannot do this anymore. Like, God, I cannot live for myself. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to give myself completely to you, and I'm going to forsake myself. Fifteen years old, there was when I was saved, right, in that moment. Now, a great testimony is going to spend a little bit of time on my past, a lot of time on the transaction that have taken place, and the rest of their time is going to say, and here's what God's done in my life since then, right? I have been a fruitful Christian. God has called me into ministry. We get to plant a church here in New Braunfels. We've seen people discipled. We've seen people saved already here in the life and ministry of this church, and that's just a little bit of the fruit that God has produced in my life through my justification, that's a testimony, and that's what your testimony should be like. And as you're making the message about Christ, you need to make sure you're making your testimony about Christ. It can't be about you. It can't be about all the bad things you did and a little bit about what God's done. It needs to be all about what God's done. And you need to give just enough about your past to let people know, yeah, there was some work that needed to be done there, which isn't hard because we all are pretty real with ourselves and think, I'm not great, okay? And so a good testimony is going to make it all about Christ. So we have the message, right? We have the message and who's it about. Now we need to talk about the method, right? We have the message and it's Christ. Now we have a method that God gives us, right? Here's who we're talking about. Here's how we're going to talk about him, okay? Right here, uh, we, him we proclaim. Look at the next phrase in verse 28. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we have two words that we have to participate in, okay? And the first one is warning. That's the Greek word nuthateo, right? And nuthateo is, is used, uh, uses a couple of different English words in the New Testament. We're going to focus on this word warning for a moment. We'll get to the other two words in a little bit. But nuthateo, it, it just means the word warning. But in a longer definition, when Paul says that we're going to warn everyone, it means this, that we're going to counsel people in light of sin and its consequences, didn't that seem like a, a nice little sentence? Instead of saying, warning, warning, which is what Nuthateo is, it's really saying, I'm going to approach you and we're going to talk in light of sin and the consequences of sin. Right? There's an entire movement of biblical counseling called Nuthetic Counseling. Right? And the whole idea in that counseling session and in that uh, practice of counseling is to say, we've got to figure out where the sin is in your life and we need to get to it, then we need to get you away from it, okay? And so that's really the message of the gospel, is we got to all get to this point to say uh, there's sin, and sin has consequences. And uh, in your life, regardless if you can see that there's consequences eternally for your sin, all of you can see that there's consequences right now for your sin. Uh, you know, if a spouse cheats on another spouse, okay, that's sin, right? I think all of us in here could all 100% agree that that's called sin, Okay. And there is consequences for that sin, isn't there? Right? There are consequences for the sin of adultery, and it's both a, uh, an eternal consequence in the fact that if you don't turn away from your sins and trust in Christ, right, you're going to pay for that sin over for, through the wrath of God. But even if you're saved, right, even if you're justified in Christ, and you, in some outward ridiculous disobedience to God, uh, do something like that in your marriage, there's still consequences for your sin you do realize. I mean, you're going to find that your marriage is going to be a lot worse place to deal with. And seeing that your spouse doesn't leave you, which hopefully not, we can reconcile, God, everything, reconcile all these things, but you realize you've created a large mess in that mistake called sin that you made has real consequences. And so, nuthetic, 
this word, right, nutheteo, this warning, is so necessary in our lives. No matter where it is in your life, you always need to, in making your message about Christ, in preaching the gospel, there always has to be a warning, right? We always need to know, why do I need the message of Christ? Because there's a warning, right? I need to nutheteo you. We need to talk about you have sin, and it separates you from a holy God. And it's counseling people in light of their sin and its consequences. Now, here's some good news for me and maybe some bad news for you if you didn't know this. Good news for me is Nuthateo is not just used in the context of pulpit preaching. It's not even just used in the context of being the pastor of a church. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it clear that Nuthateo, this warning that has to happen, is uh, as much your responsibility, if not a little more, than mine. As a matter of fact, I want to turn you to uh, Romans 15. Flip over to Romans 15. We'll be in verse 14. Uh, The apostle Paul, who wrote this letter that we're in right now, also wrote another letter to the church in Rome, And this is what he had to say about their responsibility. He said this, Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and those things happen because they're just great people all around, right? I mean, they're just perfect community. No, those things happen. Why? Because they're in Christ. It's the church in Rome. That's who he's writing this letter to. So these are Christians, and that's why he says things like, you know, you're full of goodness. He says things like uh, that you yourselves are filled with knowledge, and this is what he says. Listen, able to instruct one another. You remember I said the word nutateo is often given different English words? Well, this word here, uh, instruct, you can go ahead and underline that in your Bible. Instruct is the Greek word nutateo, right? Same word, exactly the same word as what we found in Colossians verse 28. So we understand that it's not just the pastor's job. My brothers, all of you are full of goodness, and all of you are full of the knowledge of God and able to warn one another. You're able to instruct one another. You're able to counsel one another. This is the good news of being a part of a church. I mean, you don't just go to the sage on the stage and just try, well, what do you want me to do, pastor? Like, yes, there, there is a... There is a job for the pastor to do to shepherd the flock. But what we understand the scripture teaches that we all have a role in nutateo, in counseling, in warning, and in instructing one another about God. And it's not just my job, it's our job. However, it is also my job. Uh, jot down 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Right? It is my job, and that is a primary job that I have as a shepherd. Uh, pastor Evan, he also has a job to do this specific role, and it says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, the church in in Thessalonica, right, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Overseers, right? The word overseer, episkopos, right? Overseers, right? That means the the office of pastor. That's what they're talking about right here. Uh, To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. English word. Do you know what the Greek word for admonish is? Nuthetail, same Greek word, right there, all three times. So it's, it's make sure that it's in our message. It's one of our primary aspects in the message of the gospel is that we're warning people. Your job as a church, to warn people. My job as the pastor, to warn people. You're getting it. That's good. All right, I like it. All right, so we have to understand that's a big part of the gospel is the nuthetail, instructing, counseling, warning people concerning sin and judgment. But that's not it, right? We, we got warning everyone. We also got to do something else. We also got to teach everyone, right? And as, as a matter of fact, that's so important to us because it's important to God that we put it in our mission statement, right? We reach people for Christ and we teach people to be like Christ. Right? And that's really what this is saying. Like we as a, a church, as Christians, we need to warn people and we need to teach everyone to be like Christ. 
Actually, Matthew 28, the reason it is in our mission statement is because it's in God's mission statement in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Right? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Not me, Jesus, right? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? So you need to go and make disciples of all nations, right? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teach them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. Right? That's the message, to teach them. Right? We have to go and we're going to make disciples right, by warning them and tell them to turn away from their sins and trust in Christ. And we're also, as the Great Commission says, we're going to teach them. And we have to teach. And that's the job of the Christians is to teach. It's the job of your church to be teaching. Right? If you're sitting in here and you're like, man, this is heavy stuff. I don't, people don't do this. Yes, we do. It's called the church. And we teach people. That's our job is to teach. Now, we understand it's our job to teach, it's our job to warn, and here's how we're going to do it. Let's, let's look at the next phrase. We're going to warn and we're going to teach and we're going to do it with all wisdom. Okay, this isn't, uh, this isn't I'm 130 years old and I've lived a lot of life, and uh, because of my 130-year-oldness, I'm going to just teach you guys in all the wisdom that I have. This isn't the, the kind of wisdom that this verse is talking about. If you want to know what this verse is talking about, we've already talked about it here, and it's found in verse 9 in chapter 1. It talks about the wisdom that we have been given by God at salvation, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the wisdom that we have is the wisdom of God that has been given to us in His Spirit that gets to train us in godliness and train us in righteousness. And God's very uh, Spirit is placed inside us to help us walk. And so the way that we warn and the way that we teach with all wisdom is by living in light of God's Spirit, walking with the Spirit, keeping step with the Spirit. And so if we're going to be warning people and teaching people, we better make sure that we're walking in light of God's Word and His Spirit that lives within us. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do. If I'm going to admonish and teach, what i got to do is make sure I'm walking in the wisdom of God and the Spirit that He's placed in me. And so these are all necessary parts of the method of God's teaching model. And what I need you to do is, point number two, is understand the means of preaching. Right? This, is what, this is how God uses his message. Point number two, understand the means of preaching. Uh, like this. I buy a house. How do I buy a house? What are the means that I buy a house? Money, right? Money. I have to have the means to do something. And so I'm going to buy a house because I have the means. I have the money to buy a house. Well, if I'm going to preach a message, I need to do it the way that God has called me to. So the means of my preaching is warning and teaching with all wisdom. That's the means in which that we preach the message. And it's my job, but it's also your job. As a matter of fact, we need to understand that that's really the primary post of, of the pastor is to teach. As a matter of fact, jot down 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 Timothy 4.2. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is telling young Timothy, uh, one of his little protege, and close to the end of Paul's life, he's writing some last thoughts to, to Timothy, and he's saying this. Here's what you better do, boy. This is what he says. Okay, Preach the word. Preach the word. There it is. right? It's proclaimed. Right? We've got to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means this. Uh, if uh, your country is not loving the whole God thing, if y'all, is that, that's a little cliche and a little old-fashioned, uh, I don't care. He says you need to be ready in season or out of season. So maybe you're the country, everybody loves the Lord. Well, great, that's in season. You need to preach. Uh, your country doesn't like God. Your city doesn't like God. The people in your church don't like to hear about the Word of God. Are we one of the prophets of the Old Testament where we're getting beat up because we're saying the Word of God? It doesn't matter. We need to be ready in season and out of season. And here's what we're going to do. This is what Paul teaches, right? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, okay? 
Those aren't words we use a lot in, in, you know, day-to-day unless you do, then congratulations on your great expansive vocabulary. Uh, however, we use the words like this, reprove. It means to convict, right? We need to be preaching, and the idea of the preaching of God's Word is going to convict you concerning sin, right? I mean, there's a lot of you in here who are like, you know what, Pastor, that really convicted me. Well, that's reproof, and that's so necessary in the teaching of God's Word, in the teaching ministry of the church, is that we convict people of sin. I mean, if, if you can go to a church for any amount of time and never be convicted of anything, what good is the preaching at a church that doesn't convict us? Unless we've already think, as Paul has written, unless you already think you're perfect, right? But we're not. None of us are perfect, and we've never, we haven't reached the goal of glorification, right? We're not reached this goal of being perfect in Christ. It doesn't happen until after we die. So we understand that we all need to be convicted of the messages that we hear, okay? Now rebuke. It's the word correct, right? We need conviction and we need correction, Some of us need to say, hey, listen, you're doing that, and you need to stop doing that. You need to do that, okay? And that is the word exhort, is to encourage. So the goal of the preaching ministry of the church is that we're going to convict people of sin, we're going to correct it, and then we're going to encourage you to go the other way. Like, hey, hey, what you're doing, that's sin. You feel bad, good, all right? Grief, right? That's Shame and grief, in our culture, we think it's a really bad thing. Shame and grief is real good because it lets you know, hey, you're doing something against God's law. Shame and grief do a lot in teaching us about sin. Sin produces shame and grief. You want to get rid of shame and grief? Let's correct the sin and let's exhort and encourage you to walk in a new direction. It's so important in the teaching ministry of the church. And here's how we do it, as uh, 2 Timothy 4.2 says. We're going to convict, correct, and encourage, and we're going to do it with complete patience and teaching. So with complete patience, all right, the ASPCA is never going to get called because of sheep abuse at our church, okay? You're never going to get beat for not doing something quick enough, right? Because we have to teach in God's church with complete patience. We also do it with complete teaching, which means everything in God's Word is on the table at Compass Bible Church. There's not a part of it that we're going to shy away from, that we're going to be embarrassed about, because it's all God's Word, and He has something to say to us with it. And so we're going to be completely patient and with complete teaching. We're going to teach all of God's Word. And so we've got to make sure that that is the means of preaching and so there's a couple of things you can do, right? We understand the means of preaching. And so if you have the means of preaching, you need to know what to do with it now. Okay, I got it. I got it. What do I do? Okay, here is what we do. Number one, you need to accept the means of preaching so that you will grow. Okay, and this is, uh, if you're like me, when I was younger, uh, even while I was being called to ministry, sometimes a pastor would say things I didn't like. And I would just check out during that message. I'm like, he wants to offend me that way? Then he didn't deserve my attention, you know? Uh, and what I had to understand is the means of preaching was to convict me and correct me and encourage me. And so if that's the means that God uses to grow his church, then I have to accept that mean uh, so that I'm going to grow. And so when the pastor says something that you necessarily don't like, lean into it, because God wants to use that to help you grow in your own faith. And so we got to accept the means of preaching so that we're going to grow. Number two, that means we need to humbly receive the preaching of God's word. Like, you need to enter in here. And say, you know what, I'm going to humbly accept the preaching of God's Word. Whatever God's Word has to say to me today, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to receive it. I'm not going to build up the walls. I'm not going to scowl and say, you don't understand. No, just humbly receive the preaching of God's Word. Because if God programmed us, God has also programmed us how to grow and how to be corrected. And so, therefore, God who created us is also the God who sustains us and matures us. And He has given us a way to be matured, and it's through the preaching of His Word. Number three, we're going to use the means of preaching in your own evangelism. Right? 
you need to use the means of preaching in your own evangelism, right? And here's one of the ways that the gospel often is uh, truncated, right? Truncated, we're going to make it something that it's not. We often truncate the gospel because in your own engagement with people about Christ, uh, you yourselves will not uh, convict, correct, and encourage. Or you yourself won't, as uh, verse 28 says, warn and teach. Like, you realize you can't preach the gospel correctly unless you're warning people about sin. Like, you have to warn them about sin, and you have to teach them about the solution to it, which is Christ. And so this is the problem that we have talking to people that we want to be friends with or talking to family members. And we say, you know, uh, Jesus loves you. Great. What's the problem then? It's a good, good point, okay? Like, if you start off with saying, yeah, Jesus loves us all, what's the problem? There is no problem. And oftentimes, you and I get stuck in trying to preach the gospel to people because we try to skid over this whole judgment and conviction of sin thing. And that may be why a lot of your gospel presentations are, are fruitless, not fruitful, because you're not actually trying to produce the fruit of conviction and repentance in the people that you're talking to. Like if you want to produce those things in people, you have to do it the way that God has called us to do it. And that means that we have to make sure that we are going out there to convict people of sin. And to, and to give them the good news of Christ by teaching it to them, that they would turn away from their sins and trust in Christ. And here's what you can always say. You want to soften the message? All you got to do is every single time you say something, say, me too. Right? You're a sinner. Me too. You need Jesus. Me too. You sin so much. Me too. Right? I mean, there you go. You're not telling people anything that you yourself have not had to 100% set your foundation on. So that, but that's the gospel, and we can't shy away from it. We've got to make sure that we understand the means of how God uses the preaching of his word. But here's, here's the good news, and this is why all this is important, right? God uses the means of preaching to accomplish his goal, right? He has a goal, and the means of how he preaches accomplishes the goal, which means this, the antithesis is, if you don't use the means of the way God has called us to preach the gospel, it oftentimes won't accomplish the goal that he has set out to accomplish. So we've got to make sure that we're uh, preaching the means of God's message, so that we can reach the goal of God's message. And it's this, verse 28. Look at verse, the, the end of verse 28. We're going to proclaim Christ. Or we're going to warn and we're going to teach everyone with all wisdom. Here's why. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. We're going to preach this way. We're going to present Christ because at the end of the day, we want to go and we want to present people mature in Christ. If, if you're like me, when you saw that word present, our job is to present everyone mature in Christ, you probably, like me, thought, you know what, doesn't verse 22 that we talked about a couple weeks ago, doesn't that say the same thing about Jesus? Isn't he supposed to do that? Right? That, that Jesus came to, to present us spotless and without blemish before God. Uh, and what I want us to do, because that's so important, because either we're doing the same thing Jesus is, or he's trying to tell us something different that we need to lean into so we can understand what is our work in this, Okay. And so what I did is I dove into these verses and say, what is the difference between the way that Jesus presents us before God and the way we're supposed to present people to Christ? Because there's a difference, and that difference should heighten your awareness of the importance of your responsibility. And so I can't skip over it. I want us to look at it. So go ahead and look uh, verse 22. If you can look up in your Bible, verse 22, it, teach, uh, it teaches that Christ is going to present us blameless before God, okay? That word and the, and the word in verse 28, they're the same words in English and in Greek. So that doesn't help us a lot, does it? They're the same words in Greek and English. The only difference is the ending of the two words, okay? The ending of the word in verse 22 to present is 
parastisi. Parastisi. The ending is different. And what that is, is it's the infinitive verb tense. Don't glaze over. Look at me right now. Don't do it. I did it too in English class, and I'm telling you, don't do it. You're going to pay for it like me, okay? The ending of this is the infinitive verb tense, meaning this, okay? When it says in verse 22 that Jesus presents us blameless before God, the ending of this in the English tells us this, that it's something that has been accomplished. It's something that has been done. And so although it's the same word that we're using, the ending of the word indicates this. It's an action that has been done. It's been completed. And you and I don't finish that. Christ finished that. Actually, he says it. It is finished. That's literally what he says. He has done the work necessary to present us before God, holy and blameless. So that's the good news of that word. God's done that work. But now that begs the question that I got into in my study was, Okay, then what does verse 28 mean? If he's done it, what's my part in it? Well, that word in verse 28, go down to it. Verse 28, present, same Greek word, different ending. And it is the word parastisomen. You see it, I and men, that's the different endings there. Parastisai, parastisomen. Uh, that word and that ending actually clues us into our continued work in this ministry. And really, in the Greek the literal meaning of parastisomen is to deliver people to an enemy. Okay? So they use this word in those times to say, I'm going to take somebody and I'm going to deliver them over to the enemy. Am I the enemy? Do I do the work that an enemy would do to them? No, I'm a delivery boy. Okay? I'm taking these people and I'm putting them over here. So in the context of what we read here, our work in presenting people mature in Christ is that we do this that we take people and we deliver them to Christ. That's our job. Christ finished the work. He has justified all those who would turn away from their sins and trust in him. And you say, okay, what's my job? Yeah, good. Your job is to go present people to Christ. When I'm preaching to you, my job is to grab you and say, hey, let's go see Jesus. Like, let's go. I'm going to put you here. I'm going to deliver you to him. He's going to do the work in you, right? He's going to do the work. My job is to take you to him, right? And your job, when you're preaching the gospel to people, is to go grab them. And the way that you speak to them, the way you present Christ, is to say, I'm going to go take you over to him. You've got to come see him, and he's going to do the work in you. I'm going to deliver people to him. He's going to finish the work because he's already done it. Okay, So that's why those two words are so important. And I hope you didn't glaze out there because if we don't understand the language that God's word uses, we can't ever understand the meaning of what his word is saying. Good reason to sit under biblical teaching because we're going to learn those things. And so for us to present people before Christ literally means that we need to go over there and we need to take people to him. Same word, two different endings, Two different meanings, because there are two different endings, right? The ending of Christ is that he gets to save people. The ending of our life is that we glorify God by bringing people to him. Isn't that good stuff? A lot of theology there. And then here's, here's the, the goal, right? We're going to present everyone, and it's going to do something. It's going to mature them in Christ. Another Greek word, we won't talk about it too much, but if you go to Compass Long, you're going to hear this word all the time, and it's the word teleos. Mature is the word teleos. And really, in the Greek, it says per- perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to render you perfect, or mature, or complete. And so that word is, our job as the church is to grab people, put them before Christ so he can justify them, and then we as a church, we're going to be sanctified together in him, which means that we're going to be continually growing in him. We're going to learn more about him. We're going to, we're going to uh, position and adjust our lives concerning him, and we're going to grow in our faith because of what he is doing in us. And so when we are going to teleos in Christ, that means we're going to mature in him. And so what we got to do with all that we just understood is, uh, point number three on your outline, 
is to understand the goal of preaching. Right? The goal of preaching, my goal in front of you right now is twofold. Right? If you're a non-Christian in here and you've never turned away from your sins and trusted in Christ, recognizing that you are a sinner, incompetent and unable to bring yourself to a holy God, my goal is this. I'm going to grab you, I'm going to give you a little hug, okay, and I'm going to take you over here and I'm going to present you before Christ and say, this is who you have to trust in. This is your Savior. And here's what you got to do, okay? That if you're a non-Christian in here, okay? If you're a Christian in here, it's the same that I'm going to grab you and I'm going to deliver you over to Christ and say, let's inspect our lives according to Him and let's adjust our lives, our behavior, our habits, and all the things in our life concerning this man, Christ. And so regardless if you're a Christian or non-Christian, the goal in preaching is to deliver you to Christ and let Him do with you what He needs to do. And for Christians in here, what we need to do is grow. And sometimes that's going to be taking conviction, correction, and encouragement. And so that's the goal of preaching, right? To bring people to Christ. And this is why we use God's Word. I want to flip you to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. If you can't get there too fast, just jot it down. You can go back to it in a little bit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. We want to present everyone to Christ. We want to mature everyone in Christ. And here's what the Bible does, right? Verse 16. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So we, what we see here is all of Scripture, not just the ones you do like, not just the ones you don't like, not the, the hard ones to understand, uh, not just the easy ones to understand. Like all the Scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos, breathed. It's basically God breathed it into existence. Theopneustos, right? Is God breathed and profitable, which means it's good for something. If God's given it, it's good for something. What's it good for? for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and listen to this, Christians, and training in righteousness. If you're a Christian in here, your job's not done because God's Word exists and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and even training you in righteousness. Actually, our third part of our mission statement at Compass is training people to serve Christ. So like, our mission statement is all about this, that we would reach people for Christ by preaching the gospel. That we would teach people to be like Christ because that's what he wants in our lives, for us to mature and then to train people to serve Christ. And that's what God's word does. It trains us to do the work that God's called us to do. And here's why. Verse 17, look at that. That the man of God may be complete. You know what that word is in Greek? Teleos. Complete. That's the goal. Teleos, that we need to mature people in Christ because we, God wants men and women of Christ who are complete. Right? Because he wants to complete a work in you. He wants to do a work in you. And here's, here's the why. why. Right? The why is because God wants mature people. For what, though? Look at the last phrase in verse 17. That you would be equipped for every good work. Right? The goal for you and me is to be saved, be sanctified, so we can be equipped to do the work of ministry. I've heard it this way a million times. I didn't come up with it just so you can quote it, but don't quote me. All right, God is not going to do through you what he's not done in you. Okay, And that's really the goal of sanctification. God's not going to do in you what he's not done through you. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of you in here who said, you know, I wish God would use me a lot more. I, I have passion and, and vision for ministry and things that I would love God to use me to do, and I just can't wait to fulfill those things. There are people in here right now that you say, someday I'd love to be behind that pulpit and preach a message uh, to the church and all I'm going to say is God is not going to do through you what he's not done in you. Which means God's got work to do in you, and it's to equip you for every good work. But that means you've got to do everything that we just said. You've got to make your message about Christ. You've got to understand the means of preaching. You've got to understand the goal of preaching. And it's not just 
understanding them here. It's applying them. Like, do you sit under God's teaching? Do you look forward to hearing God's word? Do you understand the, the, the gospel and how to present it and even how to receive it if you're not even a Christian in here? Right? And then understand the goal of preaching and be actively participating in God's means of teaching his word. And so we got to understand that God wants to do a lot in us so he can do a lot through us. And so we need to understand that we got to be complete. we got to be growing in our faith. And this is what we do at Compass to get that done, right? Number one, this is how I apply it to my life. I preach the gospel as to deliver people over to Christ, right? If my job is to present people to him, I'm going to present the gospel, and every time I teach, I'm going to be here to exist to deliver people over to him. And you would do well to do that in your own preaching when you're talking to people about Christ, right? Number two, preaching ought to help people mature in Christ. So when you sit in here and you say, this might be dry, the pastor's terrible, you know, all those great things, which could be true. Uh, but the end goal of this message here is to help you mature in Christ, is to help you have so much you can chew on and eat and, 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 and consume so that you will develop as a Christian. And when you leave out here, you're a stronger Christian and not a lethargic Christian, right? That you're a fit Christian and not a fat Christian, all right? Because we don't want any, you don't want any fat spiritual Christians in here, right? And then three, uh, we're going to all, including myself, receive preaching to mature in your own discipleship. If we want to understand the goal of preaching, we understand that preaching is for all of us. We all should sit under the preaching of God's word because God's got something to do in us through the preaching of God's word. And so when we come in here, we do things like take notes and, you know, take a, take a wake-up pill before we get in here uh, so that we can participate in the preaching of God's word. Now, if you're like me and you get to this point on verse 28 and you're like, that's a lot of work. Like, that's a lot for me to do. Like, I don't know if I can do all that. Well, that's good because here uh, God is going to show us how this work gets accomplished. And there's good news here. Here's how God's going to accomplish all this work of gospel ministry and gospel preaching and gospel teaching and gospel multiplication. Here's how he's going to do it. Verse 29, look at that for me. Verse 29, for this I toil... This means this, I work, toil. If you're out in the garden and you're toiling, right, that means you're working, right? You're working and you're doing something. For this I toil and struggle with. So struggle, the Greek word agonizomai. If you're a Greek scholar in here, you knew that sounded a lot like the English word agonize, right? Agonizomai, agonize, right? That's the, it literally means what it says. And it's actually a Greek word uh, that explains an athletic competition, right? When you were an athlete, when I was keyword was an athlete, right? You do a lot to push yourself to the, to the limit, and it's agonizing, but it's supposed to produce something. It's supposed to produce an athlete who is producing the outcome that they would hope to produce in their competition, and that's to win, okay? We, as Paul does right here, he says, listen, I work and I struggle hard. Like an athlete trying to win a race, that's how hard I work. But here's the good news. Here's what happens. The way that I toil and the way that I struggle it's not with all my energy. It's not with all of my good looks and you know, great charisma. No, it's with his energy the power, the, that he powerfully works within me. So it's, this, it's the work that I have to do, but it's done through the power of God. And what we got to understand is point number four before we get into this, is to expend the necessary effort to reach the lost. You need to expend the necessary effort to reach the lost. Because it is agonizing, it does take work on your part and my part, and it does take toil and agonizing effort, uh, but we have to understand that we have a God who wants to work in us and through us to accomplish the work that he has called us to do. Now, for those of you in here, I want to talk to everyone, especially if you tried to do this before. 
There are some of you in here who have been serving God's church, and you gave it three hard months of, I'm going to do everything I can for God's church, and I'm going to go all in and all out, like we talked about last week. Uh, but yet, you did all that work, and at the end of your three months of your commitment, nothing really happened. A lot of fruit wasn't produced, you know, a lot of fulfillment wasn't done. Um, but yet, your friend, on the other hand, did the same thing over three months, and from the outside, uh, looking in, you saw in three months, they produced so much fruit. People got saved, people got discipled, you know, it was great, the church was magnified, God was glorified, right? Uh, and what I'm going to say is, on the outside, it may have looked the same, but on the inside, your prayerless endeavor, where you did not seek God, you did not work in His strength and in His timing, uh, you tried to produce fruit on your own, and it didn't pan out. And on the inside of this person's endeavor of ministry was done in diligent prayer. They were seeking the counsel of their pastors, and they were trying to do the work within God's power, and the end result ended up like this. Their ministry was fruitful. Because it's God's goal to powerfully work in us to do the work that he has called us to do. And so we have to expend the necessary effort to reach the lost. Because it's going to take work. You both probably worked equally as hard. You just didn't get the fruit, right? Equal work. And we got to understand that God just doesn't do things in us that he hasn't done, do things through us that he hasn't done in us. And we have to understand too, Philippians 2.13, jot that down. Philippians 2.13, we have to understand this. That it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the good news is we're all on a level playing field in this way. Work hard. Toil and agonize at the work of ministry. You better do that. If you, you better do that. That's what God's looking for as hard workers. Uh, but what you also better be doing is understanding it's God who does the work in you, and it's him that wills things to happen, and it's him that works them out for his good pleasure. And so don't be over here and say, I just got burned out of ministry. No, you burned out because you made it all about you. God wants to make much of himself, and he'll do it through you if you do it with the, work, with the attitude and the disposition of saying, I can't do anything on my own, God's going to do the work. And so when we do work in ministry, we better do it well, we better work hard, but we better do it understanding that it's his energy that he powerfully works within me to accomplish. And so at Compass, we say things like this. You need, number one, you need to go the extra mile. You do. God's looking for people to go the extra mile, for us to commit to not just going to the threshold and saying, that was good. Like, nobody's going to look at you when you get to the threshold and say, oh, that person, they didn't do it. No, people are going to look at you if you get to this point of average service. People are going to say, they did a good job. But God's looking for people who are going to go the extra mile. He even, Jesus even says it. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go with them too. You know this to be true. God's looking for people to go the extra mile. He's also looking for people who want to stay the extra hour. Like, there is so much ministry that needs to be done that we don't have time for, and everyone who just wants to meet that line right there of average service, we could say, eh, everyone's like, okay, that's right. I mean, they did what they were supposed to. But you want fruitful, abundant ministry? Sometimes we have to agonize, and we have to stay the extra hour. We have a setup and teardown team here, second to none, right, who gets here so early and stays so late, and they stay the extra hour on both ends of this to set this thing up, and you say, what does that have to do with preaching the gospel? Well, I'll tell you what they do. They get all these chairs and all of this technology and all of this ministry done so everyone here sits in front of the pulpit where the pastor opens the word and does what? 
preaches the gospel. And they know that the work that they do, there's a 100% chance that people are put right in the firing lines of grace, that everybody here is going to hear the gospel. And so they're saying, I'm going to give the extra hour because I know this is going to be fruitful. And there's nothing better I can be doing on a Sunday morning early or late than get people into seats where they're going to hear the gospel. Because we get people in seats to watch the World Series and the Super Bowl and the plays. And, and, but how much more ministry can we do than putting people right in the line of the grace of God and being preached through his gospel? And lastly, we're going to save the extra hour. We also need to spend the extra dollar. And you know this to be true in your own life. Uh, even uh, if you want to do good ministry, remember that word ministry comes from the Greek word diakonos that we talked about last week. Remember, it just means service. Like, you understand that even general service requires you to spend money. Uh, your friend uh, across the street who's sick, you go and you go buy ingredients to cook them a dinner, don't you? And you know what? That dinner was free, wasn't it? You went up there and you stole that stuff and brought it home to cook it. No, you didn't. You bought it. Why? Because it costs money. You know that serving costs money, even when you buy food for your neighbors who are sick. And what I'm saying is in ministry is the same way. Like, you want to be effective in expending the necessary effort to reach the lost? It's going to cost some money. It's going to cost some time, and it's going to require you to do a little bit more. But that's what God wants to do in our lives to mature us to that point where we say, this stuff here, not so important. This stuff here, ultimately important for eternity. But here's the good news. I'll tell you through this. When I was in high school, I was a sophomore, so I was 14. No, I, was, I just turned 15, and I was on the 4x4 four four, uh, mile relay team at my school, okay, and, uh, which is a big deal. 4x4, four four, you know anything about track, worth the most points. They put their best athletes on the 4x4, four four. and I'm the youngest and probably the slowest, honestly. All right, but the, here's the crazy thing. My coach, my head coach on my track team, uh, ran the 400 meters and the 4x4 four four at Baylor University with Michael uh, Warner and, no, Jeremy Warner and Michael Johnson. Do y'all know those names? They're Olympic gold medalists. My coach ran the same race that he's asking me to race, and he did it with two of the best people to ever do it in the history of the United States of America. And so, like, pressure's on. We work, we work tw twice a day. Most people are working once a day in track practice. The 4x4 four four team has to do it twice. So in the morning, I'm doing it. I can't even drive yet, so my mom's taking me. I'm like, bye, mom. You know, and I, you know, all of my, the other guys on the track team are seniors. You know, and uh, I'm looking like, man, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. My coach is top-notch. These runners are top-notch, and I'm just me. You know? uh, we get to this meet, big meet of the year, and uh, big, huge school. Some of the biggest schools in the state were running at this track meet. Uh, and I am the second leg, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be rough, and so literally, I'm running, and I'm running really, really hard, and I toggle between second and third place, but all the time I'm toggling through second and first place, the first place runner is getting further and further away from me, and I'm realizing I'm losing the race, but I'm trying, and I've worked, and I've trained twice a day, and I've done all the things I need to do, but I forgot to tell you something. Fourth leg was my cousin. His name was Steven. We actually called him Bobob. I don't know why. That was his name. All right. Uh, we called him Bobob. And here's the thing about Bobob. Bobob was the fastest kid in school. Bobob was one of the fastest 400 meters in the area at the time. And so here's what I knew. I'm going to work hard because I'm just going to run my race that has been put in front of me. But I know at the end of this thing, when this baton gets handed to Bobob, that guy who's beating us is not going to be beating us anymore. All right. And sure enough, I hand it off to the third, uh, the third uh, leg, and the third leg gets around, and he kind of loses a place, actually. And he gives it to Bobob, and I'm sitting there like, it's gonna, we're going to win. We're going to win. And sure enough, he reels this guy in from 45 yards. And right before we cross the finish line, Bobob finishes in first place. 
I literally have a first place medal for the coolest track meet I've ever been a part of, and it wasn't me who won the race. It wasn't me who won it, but I get to participate in it, and I get to say, look, look what we did, okay? And you may have thought that was a really, really cool story, and what I want you to know is that's how it works in our relationship with God, right? We're nothing special, like we're not that great, we're probably the least able to do things, and, but we know that if we can just run the race that God's given us, at the end of this thing, at the end of our life, we're going to cross that line, and you know who won the race? Jesus. Do you know who was fit and capable of getting all this done? Christ. You know who was working in us to accomplish all this to make sure that at the end of this we get to look and say we finished the race and we won the prize? Jesus, right? We have to work hard. We're going to work out twice a day sometimes. We're going to spend the extra dollar. We're going to go the extra mile. We're going to stay the extra hour. But you know who's going to win this race? Christ. And so it's for you and I to make sure that we're willing to run this race and do all the work. But at the end of the day, we understand that the victory is in Christ, not in us. So let's be that kind of church that works hard, that agonizes over the work of ministry, agonizing over the, the salvation of lost souls, knowing that it's Christ who's going to complete the work. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for uh, your word, God, that you have uh, given it to us, that God it is sufficient in all things concerning life and godliness, is what your word says in Second Peter, God, that uh, through the power of God, we have everything we need through, for life and godliness. Everything that we need in life, everything we need for godliness is found in your word. So God, thank you for giving it to us, for showing us how we ought to present it to other people, and God, ultimately, for doing that work in us, God, for ultimately uh, allowing us to partake in the ministry that you have for us. So God, help us live that way this week and this year for the rest of our lives, that we would do the work necessary, understanding it's you, you who works through us. Thank you for giving us the message, the means, and the mode, and thank you for showing us the goal is to find everyone in Christ maturing and growing in their faith. So God, thank you for that. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.